Well, good evening. It's great to be with you all this evening, and thank you for having me. It is a great privilege to bring God's Word to you all. Before we get into God's Word, if you can turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, before we read it, let us commit our time to the Lord in prayer and ask Him for His help. Our gracious and wonderful Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are good in all of your ways. You are faithful and just. And Lord, you have shown us mercy and grace beyond all understanding. And we don't deserve any of it, Lord. But we say thank you for what you have done for us. Father, as we come to your word this evening, would you please speak to us? Open our hearts and our minds and our ears to be receptive to your word, I ask. Allow your spirit to penetrate us, Lord. Allow your word to speak, to convict, to grow each and every one of us here. And Father, as I bring your word, please, I ask for your help. May it not be my words, but may they be your words that I speak. May I be your instrument tonight. May I stay true to your word. And may your name be glorified throughout this evening. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Great. Well, if you're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, we'll read from verses 1 to verse 11 together. Let's come to God's Word. Now the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were only two days away. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some sly way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It, it, it could have been used or sold for, for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you and you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I'll tell you the truth. Wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted to hear this and, and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity 
to hand him over. Just that far on God's word this evening. A couple of years ago, a man by the name of Peter Stumpf played the cello for the Los Angeles Philharmonic Choir, orchestra, sorry. One day, after a concert, Peter headed on his way home, and on his way home, he stopped at a friend's house. And when he went in to have a chat, he accidentally left his cello outside the front door in its case. Well, as you can imagine, a young man came riding down the road on his bicycle, and seeing the cello in its case, he seized his opportunity. He ran up, took the cello, got onto his bicycle, and headed off. Once a safe distance away, he stopped. He opened up the case to find an old-looking instrument. In his disgust and disappointment, he tossed this cello into a nearby garbage heap. Shortly afterwards, a nurse walked past on her way to see a patient. She took the cello home with her and lay it in her house for a good few weeks. She tried to figure out, what is she going to do with this cello? Well, eventually, she decided that she wanted this cello to be turned into a CD holder. But before she could get around to doing that, well, she heard a report over the news about the theft of a cello in the area and realized it was the very same instrument she had salvaged from that garbage heap. Now, it turned out that this cello was a Stradivarius cello. It had been made by the famous Italian craftsman Stradivar in, 16, in 1684. And there were only 60 of these cellos made. Its estimated worth was 3.5 million US dollars. So much to the, re the relief of its owner, the cello was returned and repaired and a happy ending. But now it's incredible to think that this thief tossed this instrument worth 3.5 million US dollars into a garbage heap. And it's incredible to think that this nurse was going to convert it into a CD holder. You see, this cello had incredible value, which many didn't recognize or appreciate. There's nothing special in its appearance. It looked like a piece of junk. And both of them were completely mistaken in their estimation. They failed to cherish or value it because they failed to appreciate its true worth. Now, why do I give this illustration? Well, it's because there are so many today, and maybe even here tonight, whose love and knowledge of Jesus is non-existent because it's purely based on a wrong appraisal, because we fail to appreciate Jesus' worth and fail to see him for who he truly is. So let's get into God's word together. Now, before we get into the actual content of our passage, I want us to look at how the passage is structured it is like a sandwich. Verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11 are the bread. 
So in verses 1 and 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and it is the last week before Jesus' death, and things are moving quickly to the crucifixion. Jesus' mission is coming to its climax. And ever since Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, the Jewish authorities have been on his case, seeking an opportunity to arrest Jesus. But during this time, it was rather hard because Jesus is popular with the crowds. And they were concerned that they would, they would start a riot. If we look back a couple of chapters before this, in chapter 11 and chapter 12, we see the religious authorities trying very hard to trick and catch Jesus by asking him certain questions, by trying to discredit him among the people, and even trying to get him into trouble with the Roman authorities. But through all these schemes and all these tricks, Jesus outwits them all, and they end up looking like fools. And here we come to our chapter, chapter 14, two days before Passover, and we learn that the chief priests are still looking for a way to arrest and to kill Jesus. But they know that they will have to wait until after Passover when things have quietened down. But we see that they are thrown a lifeline through a very unexpected source. Take a look at verse 10. Judas, Judas Iscariot, right? one of the disciples, a follower of Jesus. He has been with Jesus for three years now, sitting at his feet, being taught by Jesus, seeing Jesus' miracles. It's that guy who has been in a good church, under amazing teaching, hangs out with good godly friends, has come to know Jesus personally, and he is the traitor. Once the chief priests hear this from Judas, they are delighted. Woohoo! <laughs> we got him now. The sandwich that we see, we, we have here, it tastes rotten on either side. It's got mold on it. It's a story of evil and betrayal. But once you get to the middle, it gets a whole lot sweeter. So, so let's get into our actual content together. I have three points for us this evening. Firstly, extravagant devotion demonstrated, extravagant devotion discouraged, and extravagant devotion defended. So let's get into the first one. Extravagant devotion demonstrated. So in between these verses of hatred and betrayal, we get to hear about this gathering in Bethany for Jesus. Our host is Simon the leper. And we can assume that this Simon is a leper no more. Well, how can we know this? Well, because if his leprosy was active, then by law, he would, not be, he would have to be quarantined. He would be unclean. He would be contagious. So we can assume that Jesus was probably the one who healed him, along with many others here. We are also given more specifics to the guest list in John's Gospel in chapter 12. We find that Lazarus is there, dining at the table with them all. 
along with the disciples. And they're all reclining there, having a meal. And then we have these words. All of a sudden, there's this woman. We are not told her name in Mark's gospel, but John identifies her as Mary, the sister of Lazarus and of Martha. And she approaches Jesus. And standing over him, he was, as he was reclining at table, we are told that she has in her hands an alabaster jar filled with expensive perfume, a pure nard. And she proceeds to break open this, this perfume and she pours it over Jesus' head. Now, there are a few things that we need to note about this woman's devotion here to Jesus. And the first thing we need to note is that her devotion to Jesus was costly. It was costly. It was, it was the most cherished thing she had, and she gave it all to Jesus. We are told that this perfume was worth a year's wages, roughly 300 denarii. So if you work six days a week for a whole year, bought no food, paid no rent, bought no clothes, but saved all that money, you would just about scrape enough to buy a half liter of this perfume. A year's salary, it would roughly come to between 150 to 200,000 rand. In other words, it wasn't the kind of thing that a lady would have in her handbag. Well, I hope not. Now, how, how would she have gotten this perfume? Well, it was either a family heirloom or it was given in marriage. We are not 100% sure, but I don't know how many men here have for their anniversary taken an entire year's salary and bought their wife a perfume. If you have, I think we best meet afterwards. And I know there are a few doctors uh, in, this, uh, yeah, in this church, so you might have to check your temperature and a few other things. But there are two main reasons a perfume like this would be kept in the home. Either to be used as a dowry on the occasion of marriage, or to be used to anoint the individual's body in preparation for their burial. So here, we discover that Mark is describing a lady who is essentially pouring away her future. Pouring away her future on the head of Jesus. She's saying, whatever hopes, whatever dreams, whatever plans or ambitions or convictions I had, I'm bringing them right here now. I'm going to pour this out on Jesus' head. She didn't dig into her handbag and find a half liter of perfume and think, fantastic, I'm going to use this today. Don't know how, but I'll find a way. No. She has thought about this. She has planned it out. She is wanting to show Jesus just how much he means to her. And notice, she doesn't put a few drops on Jesus' head. She breaks this perfume, which is a gesture of complete abandonment and pours this perfume over his head like a bath. She presents it to him in a way that it could never be used again. 
She renders the jar of perfume obsolete. When she broke that flask and poured out that contents, she is telling Jesus, you mean more to me than anything in the world. Nothing in the world was as valuable to her as Christ. She loved him with an extravagant love, and everything she possessed was his anyway. She loved the Lord more than she loved her things. The second thing we can learn from her, or that we can notice, is that once she did this act, she was rebuked by those around her. This woman was caught up with her devotion to Christ, and she didn't stop to consider what others were thinking about her. Her action made those around her feel embarrassed and uncomfortable. She she was demonstrating that, that Jesus meant more to her than her own reputation. She sacrificed her pride in order to serve her Savior. I love you so much that I do not care what anyone thinks about my expression of extravagant love to you, Jesus. That's what she's saying right here. She was so focused on bringing praise and glory to her king. We can learn so much from this woman. We can, we can ask ourselves the question, do I treasure Jesus more than my pride? Or am I more concerned about what others think about me or say about me? No matter where you are, at school, university, at work, do you focus on what others are saying or do you focus on praising the Lord? Now, once she has poured this perfume on Jesus' head, we see two different responses that she gets, which leads to our second point. Extravagant devotion discouraged. So this woman breaks open this perfume and pours it on Jesus' head, and and the fragrance of this perfume fills the room. No one anticipated this act, and no one could ignore this act. But once this action was done, look at the reaction this woman received in verse 4. Saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? Why? What's going on? You can imagine the buzz around the room as people are now whispering and muttering to one another. Why couldn't this have been sold and given to the poor? Did you know that that was 300 denarii's worth? You're kidding me. We actually see, again in John's gospel, we see that Judas is there, and he is one of the key instigators here. He knows how much this perfume is worth, and he doesn't like what he has just witnessed. He doesn't like it at all. And I think we too need to be honest. Judas and the others, their objection to this seems morally defensible. What a waste! Why did she have to use all of it? This is crazy, man. If we saw someone spend 150 to 200,000 rand in, a, in, a, in just a few minutes in a strange way, we would probably have the same feelings and the same words. Imagine a man going off to war and he is going to the fiercest part of the battle and, and he is almost surely going to die. 
And as a gift on his way to the battlefield where he will surely die, you say, you know what, I would like to give you a gift. This is a 150,000 rand diamond watch because it's your time. Well, who among, who among us here would not say, oh, hold on a moment, time out. What are you doing? Why are you giving him a watch? You know he's going to die. Give him a Bible or something. That's the kind of response we have here. And I think the question is, what should have happened? What should those who were present at this gathering have done in response to her example? And here's what should have happened. As she was pouring this perfume on Jesus' head, as everyone begins to notice and as they start to smell this beautiful fragrance of this, this nard fill the room, they should have been affected by her devotion to the Savior. They should have all gotten up from the table and formed a line and asked her, could you save some of that for me so that I also can pour it on Jesus' head? Could you... For he, he has forgiven my sins. He has healed my diseases. He has changed my life. And, and I would like to join you in showing Jesus my deep and profound gratefulness. That's what should have happened. But they missed their moment. And I pray that tonight we won't miss our moment of worshiping Christ. They don't get what's actually happening here. They consider this action of hers to be a waste. And they say that it would have been better to, to use it, you know, if you could just sell it and then use that money for the poor. That would have been a greater use. You see, the problem was not their concern for the poor. For we know that Judas, for once, I mean, he wasn't interested in the poor. He looked after the money bag. He had a great time with the money bag. The problem was that they didn't understand the moment they were in and, they, and the person they were with. If they did, they would not have thought it wise to elevate the good of the poor above the adoration of Jesus Christ. If they had truly understood their confession they made a few weeks back, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If they understood that, they would not have been embarrassed by such extravagance. There are many today who aren't that different to those sitting around that table. As one commentator says, the world doesn't have a problem with religion in moderation. It has no problem with too much wealth or power or sex or influence, but it has a problem with too much religion. Meaning, you know, they say, Oh, you can love Jesus. Just don't be too extreme about it. Don't worship him too extravagantly, okay? You see, many want a little bit of religion in their life because that is seen as decent and respectable. It's a kind of nominalism. But when it comes to radical devotion, when it comes to treasuring Christ above all and valuing Jesus more than anything else in the world and loving the Lord with all that you have, they aren't interested in that kind of Christianity because that's, 
that isn't respectable anymore. When someone spends a fortune promoting themselves or spends a fortune on a better life or on a holiday or better education, well, those things are understood and accepted and approved. But when somebody shows that same level of devotion and zeal and time and expense and energy for Christ, what's the response? What a waste. You get scolded. My question to us tonight is, are we all in? Are you and I willing to be fools for Christ? Not in a silly, immature, look for trouble kind of way. No. But the sort of fool that is known for the extravagant devotion to Christ. Or is our aim to follow Christ in such a way that we will always be thought decent or respectful? We need to learn from Judas here. Some might live so close to Jesus and be involved in all the activities at church or on mission trips and yet be so far from the kingdom of God. The danger is getting so involved just so you can get something out instead of being involved so that you might give your all to Christ, to give him all your worship and praise. The Lord looks on the hidden motives of our heart. He knows. So the question we need to ask again is, are you doing that certain thing to worship a holy God? If you take a look at verse 5, the end of verse 5, we are told that they scolded and rebuked her. In the Greek, this, this word means to flare one's nostrils like a horse or a bull. They are flaring their nostrils at this woman. It's quite a strange image. But, you know, they're probably saying, you foolish woman, what are you thinking? Wasting this, this nod on Jesus. Why not just give a few drops? That should be enough. Why did you have to go and waste the whole thing? This lady was scolded because she wanted to show her gratitude to Jesus by giving up the most treasured possession she had. Do we see the contrast? Mary is thinking, will I have another opportunity to show how much I love Jesus? And Judas, on the other hand, is saying, will I have another opportunity to give something from Jesus? And we all know the rest of our Bibles. We know that Judas eventually betrays Jesus. So there's this dramatic change in the mood and atmosphere at this gathering. This festive, joyous environment has become hostile. And it's sad because often if you give your, yourself without reserve to Christ, you will be criticized and the loudest criticism will often come from within the church. We see that criticism come from those who we thought were on our side. Do we worship Jesus for who he is or for what we can gain from him? Which leads us to the second response to the woman's extravagant devotion, which is our third point, and I'll go a little bit quicker here. Extravagant devotion defended. 
all of a sudden, a voice of authority is heard. Jesus responds. And how does he respond? Does he respond to this woman by agreeing with Judas and saying, you foolish woman, how can you be so silly? Look, you've messed up my hair and I smell like a florist now. No. He scolds these other folk. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? And look at these next few words. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Wasteful? Not a chance. What she just did was beautiful. Why? Because it was done to me. That's what makes it beautiful. And this is crazy talk from Jesus. Jesus is placing himself at the center of it all. He basically says, leave her alone. She's getting ready for my burial. It's all right. I'm worth it. Now, if I gave you a quick example, there is a 12-seater restaurant in Spain called Sublimotion that charges 35,000 rand per person for a 20-course meal. So if you heard that the deacons and elders in this church, as a love offering, decided to take Carl Tamblin and his wife to the restaurant, and they say, we'll pay for your meal, don't worry, and all of you throw your arms up in disgust, complaining, this is a waste of money, and we all start moaning, and Carl comes up here and he says to all of you, chill out, I'm worth it. Well, he won't be worth it much longer. I'm sure he'll be looking for a new job, and you'll be looking for new deacons and new elders. But this is, that's, that's what Jesus is saying here. I am worth it. I am worth what she is doing right now. What she's doing and has just done makes a lot of sense to me. It's a beautiful thing. You see, the disciples and others, they have failed to evaluate Jesus correctly. They are pretty much saying that Jesus is not worth, worthy of such extravagance, just like that thief and that nurse with that cello. So who has rightly understood Jesus is worth here? Not his disciples. This woman. Look at verse 7. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them any time, but you will not always have me. Jesus isn't saying don't care for the poor, because, I mean, that will go against everything that he's taught. He's saying, my friends, in just a little while, I will no longer be physically with you. I'm going to be with you by the comfort of the Holy Spirit, yes, but I'm not going to be physically present with you. And the opportunities for pouring out your devotion to me physically will pass. So now is your time. I'm here. What are you waiting for? And Jesus says in verse 8, she did what she could. Wow. We're actually reminded two chapters earlier in chapter 12, verse 41 onwards, of the poor widow and how she gives all she has to the temple treasury, a sum total of two copper coins into the offering. And Jesus, what does he say? She's the example. She is the example. 
Look to her. And now we get this lady on the other side who pays a, a bigger price, 300 denarii's worth. And Jesus now says, she's the example too. You see, it's not the, um, the amount that matters. Jesus commends them both. It's not the size of the gift that matters. It's the level of devotion and expression of wholehearted love and gratitude and commitment to the Savior. This woman is the complete opposite to Judas, hence the sandwich that we see. It's the complete contrast of Judas and the leaders on one hand and this unnamed woman on the other. She has done what she could. Well, what can you do and I do to honor the Lord? How, what can we do to glorify Him through our devotion in our everyday life? What everyday things can you do in devotion to Jesus, whether at school? How can you be... How can you show that devotion to Christ there? Teenagers. Those who are in university, how can you reflect Christ? How can you honor Him at your work? How can you be a light for Christ and give Him extravagant devotion there? Well, I don't want to tell you, I pray that the Holy Spirit will lead you into those things. Many commentators say that this woman didn't know what she was doing. Well, there might be some truth in that, but there could be some understanding that she has of Jesus' mission. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body before, beforehand for burial. And that's the real significance here. It's a significance that is directly related to his death. If you think about this, the law demanded no Jew would have been buried without the preparation of anointing. And Jesus was going to be captured in the garden, taken away, beaten and crucified. And in the providence of God, here, in an unusual place, in the house of Simon the leper, the anointing and preparation for his burial takes place by this woman. Wow. God has it all planned out. This was the last piece of kindness that Jesus is going to experience before he dies. Jesus has mentioned this to his disciples several, on several occasions, that he is going to die in Jerusalem, but they don't understand. So it would appear that this woman is the first in Mark's gospel who truly understands that it is only through Jesus' suffering and his death, that, is, that, that his salvation mission is accomplished. It's through Jesus' death that the way of salvation is about to be opened, and, and it's through his death that the gospel is going to be realized. That's what he is referring to here. In verse 9, we see that she is going to be remembered for this extravagant devotion. Whenever the gospel is shared, you can see that Jesus is, what he said here is actually being fulfilled tonight in remembrance of her. You see that this is what Jesus is looking for. He's looking for radical devotion. So, so we ought to love him with all that we have. 
For when you truly understand who Jesus is and how much he has done for you, that is, he has died on a cross for you to remove your and my sins. We don't deserve that. What have you done to deserve that? Nothing. We are the ones who put him on that cross. How can we want to give him anything less than our all? than our lives, than our bodies, than our things, everything. When you have understood the gospel and it has pierced your heart and you finally comprehend what God has done for you in Christ, then that half-hearted nominal Christianity is just not possible. Once the gospel has penetrated your heart, and I pray that tonight, if the gospel has not penetrated your heart, I pray that it would tonight. So where do you fit in the story? Are we like the woman, devoted to Christ, loving Him, showing that love and costly self-giving regardless of what others think, knowing that He is the one who saves? Or are we like Judas, apparently respectable, apparently Christian, but yet never having submitted to Christ's reign and rule in our hearts? Where do you stand this evening? What does the cross mean to you? What does Jesus mean to you? Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we say thank you for your word. Thank you for the the wonders that it teaches us, Lord. Thank you for this amazing example of this woman and how she shows this extravagant devotion to you, showing us how truly to worship you and cherish you above all things. And I pray, please, Lord, that tonight that you would convict us here, Lord, that you would change the way we live if we have been living half-heartedly or lukewarmly, that you would stir a fire within us to worship you for who you truly are. You are a great and awesome God who has made a way to save us and to reunite us to yourself. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience to your Father, for coming and dying on a cross for each and every one of us sinners setting us free from sin and death. Thank you. Lord, may you be glorified throughout this new week. May our lives reflect great devotion to you in all that we do, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.